Mary Poppins possessed superpowers. So could she have deployed them for ill instead of good? Um, I think that would make kind of an interesting sequel. If you think about it, Mary Poppins gone bad. But the point is that she shows the choice we have as a society. Finding that the right balance between truly respecting people's privacy, but also potentially using the power of technology to truly help people get better training um, and ultimately maybe have a more delightful uh, experience at work is, you know, is a, is a very typical example. And this is not science fiction. It's right here, right now. Any training data set that, that's going to produce that uh, AI system is going to have a bunch of not just biases, but inequalities built in, you know, the gender gap in the labor market, for example. And what AI will do and always does do is, is reproduce those inequalities on a massive scale. But it's not clear what the right thing to do is there. So today's episode is on Mary Poppins and ethical robots. That's the kind of, if you like, funky, catchy title. It's kind of about ethics, morality in technology and work and the world outside. And I found it a really enjoyable um, episode. I really had to concentrate. Not that I don't normally concentrate, but I had three guests on today who really um, uh, delved deeply into the subject. Um, one of them who writes on the subject, uh, two of them are writing, who've written or writing books around this topic. Um, and we had a really great conversation around what this all means. It kind of left me with the feeling that Actually, one of the things I'd predicted in 2019 was that ethical, moral um, workplaces, technological and physical, would become a powerful recruitment tool. And I kind of didn't feel like that one really arrived in 2019. But I'm now feeling, particularly based on the comments from one of the guests, that actually that was just about timing and that the idea of having a workplace that has been thought about in all levels as an ethical, sustainable, moral place to work um, is going to be really important. Because you can actually surveil people in work now in ways that are completely unprecedented. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, and I think we're going to end up with a level of regulation, a level of legislation around the technology space, particularly in terms of politics, but I also think in the way that we work. Um, I think this, this kind of way that technology allows us to work wherever we want, whenever we want, has got its upsides, but all of these things can either lead either through ignorance or design to something that we really don't want. So, um, without further ado, I bring you our episode on Mary Poppins and the Ethical Robots. So I'm delighted to be joined by three terrific guests today on the show. David Oscandi is a global general counsel, um, experienced in leading people, solving problems and building initiatives across 
geographic, cultural and professional boundaries. David has led the legal teams around the world with top companies, including Anderson, Honeywell, Wrigley and Avenard, a joint venture between Microsoft and Accenture. Recently, Premier Legal Publisher Transatlantic Legal recognised David as its General Counsel of the Year and his team as its Legal Department of the Year because of their work pivoting the legal team that he led at Avenard from traditional technology consulting to an ambitious digital and cloud strategy based on the deliberate application of the expectations, culture and practices of the technology sector. Hard getting legal teams to change, so I think that's a, a real testament to the work that David's been involved in and he graduated in law from Harvard. Florin Rotar is an executive in charge of global modern workplace at Avenard and at the Accenture Microsoft Business Group. He's been leading Avenard's global digital market unit for several years. He's been experienced as a chief technology innovation officer. He's a non-executive board member for Acumina, the technology firm, and previously was at Procter & Gamble. He's also the co-author of a fantastic book called We the People, Human Purpose in a Digital Age, a guide to digital ethics for individuals, organizations, and robots. Really like the bit about robots at the end there. Uh, My third guest is Josh Simons. He's a graduate fellow at the EJ Safra Centre for Ethics and the Bergman Klein Centre for Internet and Society at Harvard. He's currently finishing up his book called AI versus Democracy, How Citizens Can Rule Machines, which outlines how regulation of artificial intelligence and big tech companies can strengthen rather than undermine democracy. And don't we all need that? He is previously with Facebook, seeking to change the way the company makes decisions about the design and deployment of AI systems. He's a research fellow at the Institute for the Future of Work, a technology fellow at the New America Foundation, India, US program, and graduated with a double star first in politics from Cambridge University. I'm somewhat intimidated by the uh, wealth of knowledge on this particular episode. But David, can I start by asking you, the thing that sort of drew me into the topic today is the article that you authored in the Financial Times about Mary Poppins and ethical robots. How on earth did you come to that? And can you explain what you mean? The character of Mary Poppins kind of embodies the power of nurture in the popular imagination. And in fact, beyond that, um, she represents the proper channeling of power to maximize individual potential for the good of the groups they belong to and the environment that should allow them to thrive. In her case, the Banks family and uh, that family environment that uh, represents that concept. She brought self-awareness to the Banks family along with the humane but rigorous order that flowed from common sense values. We think about the decency, the caring, the fairness and respect that she conveyed. And she conveyed these firmly and enforced these values consistently. And with the Banks family, this ended up liberating them from their narrow selfish instincts and kind of a perfunctory conformity with social norms to cooperate and appreciate the meaning of their union as a family 
achieving more happiness as individuals and as a family than they could have in their natural um, unnurtured state, let's say. Now, you know, the other aspect of this is uh, we can't forget that Mary Poppins possessed superpowers. So could she have deployed them for ill instead of good? Um, I think that would make kind of an interesting sequel. If you think about it, Mary Poppins gone bad. But the point is that she shows the choice we have as a society. And uh, that choice is to define the rules to optimize our relationship to others that foster our working together in ways that create value for individuals and the families, organizations, and societies that they belong to. Um, this demonstrates the essential human quality of free will, I think. The ability and then the will to understand our choices and then be able to choose to change and to create without which we really don't feel human. And uh, belief in nurture um, underlies the belief, I think, in our ability to choose, change, and create. And this kind of leads to the connection, in my mind, between morality and power and its connection to values in the workplace. Mor morality ultimately, in my mind, has to do with power and how we shape it. What boundaries do we place on it to protect our integrity as individual human beings and as a society? Um, I think this resonates with everyone, with all of humanity, whatever circumstances people find themselves in. And this is why when we see an abuse of power, we're never surprised by the reaction that follows. That's why it's impossible in exactly the millennials imperative for global multinationals to coalesce around a certain set of values shared to such an extent that it's almost possible to talk about a kind of corporate humanism that is the latest expression of moral traditions that seek mm. to identify and safeguard our essential humanity. Um, so all this implies a need for a conscious decision. And of course, morality doesn't exist without the ability to make a choice between right and wrong. And this is the essential quality of humanness. Um, the loss of this freedom, I think, is what people fear about AI, that some algorithm paired with some data mass will maximize a particular good while ignoring its consequences, missing the bigger picture, while robbing us of our power to choose, change, and create, mm -hmm. and enslaving us. So that's that, so. In this, you're kind of um, um, seeing the technology that's being created a bit like trying to raise children. So you're seeing it almost like as a natural, um, organic kind of matter. Um, in, in this analogy with, with Mary Poppins. Yeah, you could, you, you know, that really is the, uh, the, the, the tension um, in this nature versus nurture idea is uh, in reality, um, as I mentioned in my, um, my article, uh, kind of kicking it off with the friend I talked to who had uh, just enjoyed the birth of his first child, you know, coming to that situation with the idea of having raised two sons that in many respects, what you get when they come out of the womb is who they are. But um, there's a counterpoint to that that's very strong and I think important for technology, which is this concept again, that we actually do have the ability to create and the obligation to create in a way that uh, benefits um, society and our, the expression of our humanity as individuals um, who live in it. Mm -hmm. And with technology, you know, it's nothing, there's nothing inherent, I guess, in, in technology, unlike, 
human beings um, that uh, that will direct them in in their growth in their life. Uh, you know, okay. this is something that's fully within our hands. Okay, and um, could you give me an example that would would sort of describe a technology which you feel has been developed, whether it's in the workplace or not, which has had, if you like, the right kind of. You use topics like decency, morality. Um, uh, you know, those kind of characteristics. Yeah, a, a, uh, I would say that uh, focusing um, in particular on the workplace, um, we see the, the consciousness of how we apply technology in, um, in the relationships among stakeholders. So let's talk about employees and how we govern those relationships when, in fact, the workspace is increasingly more virtual. And now with the, the advent of 5G, um, you know, in many cases, is going to be completely virtual. So I think we, we've, uh, there's been a high level of consciousness on the part of uh, organizations about how you address that. You want to provide the freedom for people to express themselves in this way that's so liberating, but in a way that also adheres to a consistent set of principles that safeguards the integrity of everybody who's participating in that communication. Okay. And um, Florian, can I bring you in? Um, you, you wrote We the People, uh, Human Purpose in a Digital Age, a Guide to Digital Ethics for Individuals, Organization, and Robots of All Kinds. What 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 motivated you to write a book in this in this field yeah, it's it's been a, a bit of a labor of love to be honest um, um, it's something which i i've been um, increasingly uh, passionate about and and uh, you know it's been a, a bit of an awakening for me so i've, I've always been a technologist i, I love technology um, but i've i've started to uh to realize um, a number of years ago that, um, you know, technology um, and uh, increasingly artificial intelligence and uh, intelligent automation can be, a, you know, a sort of tools of mass potential, but can also have a lot of unintended consequences. And, you know, frankly, as sort of the work that myself and my team around the world is doing, has is is having a, a rather large impact on you know millions of of people really. Um, um, I, I just feel it's really important that um, we uh, we harness the um, the good um, out of technology, but we're also very very cautious and deliberate about minimizing the risk for abuse and you know more importantly and more risky. I would say you know, un unconscious biases uh, and unintended consequences of the uh, of the technology. Mm. And Florian, do you, do you have an example of, of where things can go, could, can go wrong, can go awry when we when we don't properly think around this topic of, of di digital ethics? Yeah, I mean, uh, pretty much every day in everything which which touches a uh, you know, a person of, of work, to be honest, because, you know, topics such as, let's say, who gets invited to a job interview and how you're assessed at that job interview and, um, you know, how your performance 
evaluation is being done and what training you're offered and how you get promoted and um, your safety at work, uh, you know, regardless of which industry you're in and what role you have in, a, in an organization. I mean, those things are increasingly driven um, by, uh, by computers in, in, you know, one shape or form. And just to get more specific, I mean, an area which is um, increasingly evolving, which is very, very promising and promises a lot of good, but, you know, also requires a fair amount of uh, um, consideration is, um, is uh, behavioral analytics in the workplace. So, so basically understanding the patterns uh, quantitatively and qualitatively of how people work in their everyday work and trying to extract insights from those patterns which would help somebody to have a you know a more productive or more delightful um, day at work is you know obviously a good thing um, um, it's very important to organizations as well because uh, as I'm you know as you know better than I do we've had this sort of nebulous promises of productivity and collaboration and what have you with workplace technology for several decades now, but it's been largely a uh, sort of a nebulous hope and an aspiration. And, you know, now with technology, you're finally able to uh, to be scientific and data-driven about it. Um, but, but it also clearly has, you know, big, big implications in terms of um, people's privacy. Um, uh, I'm sure nobody would feel particularly good about knowing that there is some sort of a nebulous algorithm which tracks and measures how you work and you know how much of your time you're spending in emails and how uh, how many um, polls you have a day and um, you know what you're doing in Outlook and so forth. It, it's it's uh, obviously very creepy. So finding that the right balance between truly respecting people's privacy but also potentially using the power of technology to truly help people get better training um, and ultimately maybe have a more delightful uh, experience at work is, you know, is a, is a very typical example. And this is not science fiction. It's right here right now. Right. Yeah. And, and um, Josh, so you're, you're finishing your book or working on the book called, AI versus democracy, how citizens can rule machines. Um, what are you discovering as you're, as you're writing that? So I guess the main uh, finding is that um, the conversation about how we use technology and how we use uh, the powers that we have to shape technology, to shape our society that that conversation needs to not just be about values, but about um, actually how we govern these technologies. Um, so the thing that I'm interested in is, is the way that technology shapes politics and then politics shapes technology. Um, and in the 19th century, for example, you had all the technologies of industrialization like steel and oil and railroads that... Uh, you know, created the richest men America had ever seen. Um, but America as a society concluded that the way that these technologies were being governed was basically undermining American democracy. Um, and so what they did over the you know late decades of the 19th century and the early 20th century 
was devise a whole bunch of different ways that we now call antitrust and competition law to govern these technologies and to regulate them um, and subject them to, to, to citizens and to democratic politics. Um, and I think we need to start thinking in the same way about a lot of the technologies that we have in front of us now. So if you take um, the example that, that Florian just gave of the of the um, of, a, of an algorithm or an AI system that decides who to invite to a job interview, any training data set that, that's going to produce that uh, AI system is going to have a bunch of not just biases, but inequalities built in, you know, the gender gap in the labor market, for example. And what AI will do and always does do is, is reproduce those inequalities on a massive scale. But it's not clear what the right thing to do is there. Um, should you produce a more, a less efficient algorithm that's going to invite some people for the job interview who actually would not be very good in pursuit of closing that gender pay gap? Or should you accept that there's going to be a gender pay gap, that that's not the responsibility of whoever's designing the AI system, but in the knowledge that that's going to reinforce the gender pay gap over time? Um, those kinds of questions are difficult, and there are reasonable differences of view about them. Um, and therefore, what we need is ways of governing decision-making processes, both within companies and also between companies and government, that allow those differences of view to be expressed and articulated and then decisions to be made. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so, so really you're, you're saying it's really a time for a level of regulation around the, the technology, because, you know, if we take, and I love the comparison with the industrial revolution, that the, the technology shapes politics and then, politics needs to shape to technology and i suppose if we look back over the last 10 years the technology has definitely shaped politics and it and it's now it's now time to sort of redress this imbalance that's exactly it exactly it and right. um and you know there's nothing inevitable about about politics you know kicking back and having its moment to shape technology it doesn't just happen inevitably what makes democracy different to other political systems like you know monarchs in the middle ages is that it, it allows citizens to debate and discuss and to you know do podcasts like this how they should shape technology um and when those ideas gain currency and the the you know politics aligns it opens that possibility of actually shaping technology in a in a deliberate and intentional way through regulation and uh, and that's exactly what I think we need to do now. Yeah. So what does this? Um, so and I think you're you're right. And I can imagine that the regulation of technology and there's an increasing number of people asking for for sort of greater oversight. I, I think that the sort of idea that it would somehow kind of regulate itself doesn't seem to be working. But what does this mean inside the world of work? Because you know, as you said, Florin, you know, this technology changes the lives and affects the lives of millions of people. And the way that organizations, particularly large organizations, operate affects so many people. So is, is there a does this regulation need to come into the world of work as well, Josh? 
Well, I think absolutely. Um, and there's a couple of a couple of things about that. Um, one is that we're going to have to update across, you know, every democracy that uses uh, AI and machine learning and other forms of big data decision making is going to have to update discrimination laws um, because discrimination laws were designed for a world in which you had maybe unconscious biases, but human decision makers you know, deciding who should get the job or who performed well in interview. Um, and in a world where algorithms and AI models are making those decisions, we're going to need updated and revised, I think, discrimination laws um, to govern the workplace. So that's, I think, one critical change. And, and the second thing that I think needs to happen in the workplace is that we need to become much better and much more familiar with how to represent the views of those who will be subject to these technologies. Um, so if you're talking about data analytics at work, for example, and a workplace is going to install cameras that use, um, that, 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 that analyze how quickly people are moving around, how long they spend at their desk and so on, there need to be workers involved in the decision-making about how that technology is adopted and for what purposes it's used and what the rules are around disclosure and so on. And that representation of their interests and their views and their feelings has got to become a common part of how uh, companies, businesses, and also government departments integrate technology into their, their existing systems. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me, I mean, I remember being at Nokia in, in Finland, it must be about 10 years ago, and and they had started to um, use GPS inside the inside the workplace to kind of find out where people were. And they did it in a very sort of Finnish way so that everybody was opting in. Everything was done through consensus. Uh, and, and actually, they found it really useful. And then when I told people about it, they'd go, oh, God, that sounds really sinister. Everything immediately becomes sort of you know, 1984. Um, but um, it's it's a, it's an interesting... I wonder, Florian, do you feel that having, if you like, an ethical um, workplace, kind of physical, digital, could be a, a powerful recruitment tool? Um, I mean, will... Do you envisage that people, younger people particularly, might want to join organisations that have a more explicit kind of set of ethics in the way that they either use or don't use technology? Absolutely so. In, in fact, um, it's not only it can, it, I would say it is. Um, it's, it's an imperative, um, to be honest. I, I think um, it's existential, um, I'd dare even say. So I, I think we are in a world where um, very, very few people would want to work for a company which they would feel is uh, uh, is unethical, either by accident or because they're they're being sloppy or or being cheap. Um, and also, to be honest, from a from a company perspective, um, this topic of of digital ethics um, is actually very quickly becoming what I would sort of equate to what security used to be in the past. It, um, if you think a few years back, cybersecurity was uh, um, um, 
optional uh, for a lot of companies, um, or if it wasn't optional, it was something that was considered a necessary evil and something which uh, very few people paid attention to. I'll dare to say that there isn't a single company out there right now which doesn't have security, cybersecurity at the uh, um, as a main topic at the board level. It's what a topic which can make or break companies, and and we are very rapidly approaching a point in time where ethics is the new security. It's it's uh, uh, it's paramount. Um, it's non-negotiable. It's uh, it's critical. Right. Yeah. And 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 I'm thinking about. Um, I can think of a, a good example of of when it doesn't work, and I I I I, I absolutely agree about it being. A, a, a requirement of a kind of workplace that people are going to want to be in. But there was a film that came out uh, in the UK last year called Sorry I Missed You by Ken Loach. And he's a kind of gritty documentary maker. And he, he, he sort of set it in a, let's call it a distribution warehouse. And the technology there was really being used in a very sinister way to control um, really kind of uh drive people to exhaustion and and you know people the people working there were doing it because there really wasn't an alternative and it was a uh it was a, a kind of fictional film but it was based on experience so <clears throat> i think we can see the ways that the technology can be used in a in a sinister way um are there any particular organized oh go on, go on, go on, go on. you know there are actually, um, in my experience, very, very few, if any, sort of companies which are, you know, deliberately approaching this from a, uh, how should I put it, sinister perspective. I mean, in, in my experience, it's unawareness, um, which is more common and, and therefore more risky. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of the... Um, relatively small things which can be done and most organizations are actually quite keen on doing to minimize the, the risks, right? So going back to the example we were having previously around uh, recruitment. So um, I, I think more, more companies being aware of the fact that when they train the algorithms, it's really, really um important to have a, a data set um, which you use to train the algorithm, which doesn't just reinforce um, uh, existing biases which are which are present in, in the uh, you know in the data set which is the easiest one to use, but actually you're deliberately um, using an expanded data set and are really um, Doing your very best to train the algorithm to uh, to, inc to include um, non-typical um, examples, right? And and it's uh, it's not rocket science. It may be a little bit more expensive in the short term, but it's it's something that's sort of a no-brainer. Or as a simple thing as as helping people and being transparent about how you've um, trained the algorithm. And the values and the principles um, that have been uh, used to train the algorithm, such that it's not only um, uh, sort of done on a case by case basis, but deliberately following a set of principles uh, and values which most organizations have, or at least claim they do. So 
I, I think, you know, I, I agree personally with the fact that there is probably some regulation which is needed. Um, um, I, would so, I would also say, though, that sometimes most companies actually are trying to do the right thing, and it is the little things, so relatively little things, which can have a really big impact. Um, and, and I'm you know, personally heartened by the fact that when you're opening up people's eye a little bit of, you know, these are some examples and best practices and guidelines, mm. most organizations are actually quite keen to, uh, to embrace them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, David, I mean, so what should organizations think about when they're starting out in, in considering, if you like, modern modern workplace ethics? If if this for them is a new area, because I think, as Florin says, it's not a deliberately malicious thing. It's often just a lack of awareness or, you know, uh, something you haven't thought about. Yeah. And, uh you know, I let me uh, let me just point to um, in terms of good news. I think of the uh, the concept of adaptability, which I think is a very important value when you talk about AI. So that's the idea that if you make a mistake, you correct it based on what you see. You know, we know that uh, Amazon abandoned its algorithm um, for uh, recruitment, online recruitment, once it realized that it was perpetuating. Um, decisions that were not reflective of fairness and inclusiveness. So that's that's good news. We want to see that, and that was a a good thing to do. Um, you know, I also point to um, getting uh, digging back to a different part of the discussion. This idea of uh, Paul, you asked the question about the necessity of um, implementing digital ethics in the workplace is something that's really now become essential. And I agree with Florin. I, you know, I go beyond the the employees, the workforce, um, to stakeholders generally. And so, we have to credit the millennials, um, their rising impact. I think a lot of this really they brought into companies. And um, so now we see that that has converged. And I saw this myself, kind of sitting in the middle of it at Avanade. I was not only general counsel, but uh, chairman of the corporate citizenship um, council. And, you know, this is something that now has extended beyond employees to all the stakeholders. So we're talking about clients, we're talking about shareholders, we're talking about ecosystem partners, um, to the extent that Gartner last year identified digital ethics as one of their top 10 strategic trends for this past year. So, you know, this has spawned the rise in corporate citizenship and responsible business entity approaches that go beyond strictly thinking about um, how we govern our um, our development and our interactions with um, with artificial intelligence and uh, the digital world generally. But back to your question, uh, your 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 present question, um, Paul. You know, I think that organizations think about all of this as broadly as possible even when they're just starting out. So if they're, you know, if they're, if their question is, is uh, they're thinking their question is limited to what minerals and vitamins do I feed my AI to make them grow up to be strong moral actors in the universe? 
I think it goes beyond that. So what they need to do is get to some get some basics in place. So they need to they need to build some fundamental values for their organization if they haven't already and uh, build a consistent expression of those values along the entire span of how their other uh, of how their employees and other stakeholders experience their relationship with them. Um, everything flows from the foundation of what an organization agrees fundamentally establishes its place in the world and how it should relate to it. And, you know, I would think that, um, and you can see this in the, in the discourse generally um, among uh, certainly the technology companies uh, that what they should be thinking about are certain principles such as, again, fairness, inclusiveness, integrity, dignity, accountability, and trustworthiness. So accountability, for example, if we go back to Josh's, Josh's uh, example, um, we, we should not have any technology that is not answering to ultimately human consciousness and human decision-making. Mm. And, and Josh, do you feel that we, because it feels to me like the, the pendulum has swung back to the human beings in the last couple of years, that, that, that we, we, we were in a period, and maybe we're still in it, where we felt like the technology was going to sort of displace human activity and, you know, we'd be sort of rendered as a sort of useless class or kind of people who just seem to be on holiday all the time. Um, and, and, and actually, we seem to be kind of having more faith that, that human beings are going to have agency in this. Is, am I being just kind of optimistic or, or, or do you see that trend happening as well? No, I, I, I do see that, that trend. I mean, certainly in the, the debate um, about technology, that has happened. Um, but I think that if you look at, at actual politics, you know, voters in America and Britain and so on, who, who kind of exist in a world independently from these uh, debates about whether, you know, robots are going to take everybody's jobs, they are really reacting, I think, um, to some of the consequences of these technologies. Um, but they're reacting against things that have got nothing to do with the technologies. Um, you know, Trump often talked about trade deals. He never once talked about um, automation, even though it's a far more important determinant of um, job losses across um, across America. So I do think that, that there is this general sense in politics, this hunger for a form of control, um, collective control, uh, at the level of a of a state, but also you know more local forms of control within communities and in the workplace uh, and so on. Um, and that that I think is really critical for everybody, including businesses, to recognise that that need for humans to have a sense of agency and control over their lives, because it's not it's not possible that that Facebook's AI, for example is ever going to be immediately answerable to a human. You know, the newsfeed ranking algorithm processes billions of pieces of content every day and decides what order they're going to appear on your newsfeed in, you know, which which pieces of content fall foul of some policy and should therefore be demoted or, or removed. And that is never going to be controlled by humans. Um, and that means that those who are shaped by the effects of that of that system, all of us, when we talk to each other on Facebook and when we read news and so on, 
need to have some way of influencing it and expressing our views about what it should look like. Um, and that, I think, is is a lot of the uh, state of democratic politics around the world is, is about that hunger for control and an expression of, of an individual viewpoint, even when we live in a world that is so driven by technologies that we don't fully understand. Mm. I mean, you know, Paul, if I could add to that, if you wouldn't yeah. mind, I think that picking up on that point that Josh just made, I think that takes takes us back to my prior point about uh, the connection between power and morality. And in fact, Josh, I think that uh, what you're describing of the, the loss of the feeling of a loss of control, I think in many people's minds that that equates to an abuse of power in the sense mm -hmm. that if you've got actors who are finding a reason not to hold themselves accountable for what they've spawned, um, either finding a good excuse or saying that it doesn't matter, I think that's when you get into the realm of an abuse of power, really, because they've got the power to, to um, collect all this information and then process it through these algorithms. And then, you know, if they, fail, if they fail to hold themselves accountable for the outcome, then that power that we've granted them as a society has, has, uh, has slid over into the realm of abuse. So I think that that is the connection to the morality question of, you know, we do expect the actors in this space to act morally, again, in the sense of not only accountability, but fostering trustworthiness and adaptability, um, acting on feedback from societies, from individuals about what's right and wrong, and certainly fairness and inclusiveness. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's great. And um, as we come up to time, I'm, I'm, um, what's coming into my mind is is um, that scene out of Little Britain, which hasn't been on for quite a while, where somebody goes in and, you know, the, the line was, the computer says no. You know, so there'd be somebody asking some question and an individual sitting next to the computer types it in and goes, just, the computer says no. And anyway, I think that actually what we're, in a way, collectively saying is that actually this topic of, of um, ethics, morality in the workplace is really coming into the fore, both um, in the world of work and, and externally. So one of the questions I, I like to end each of the podcasts with, and I'll start off with you, Florian, if this is okay, but it's completely different to this topic, but it's a, what's, what's a perfect working day look like for you? So when things have just gone absolutely beautifully and you've had just like the perfect work day, what, what, what does that look like? <laughs> Um, well, that's every day, surely. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I think a, a great, a perfect day is uh, a day where um, I've had fun. Um, I've uh, been um, um, seriously challenged and I've had to think hard about solving some problems. Um, and then ultimately I can go home and you know, look myself in the mirror and say, well, you know, today I've made, I've helped uh, make the uh, the world a little, little better than uh, what it was um, than when I uh, woke up in the morning. Beautiful. And, um, and Josh, how about you? Well, I agree with Florian's love of the sun, a, a working day in which you can get some sun is a real privilege. Um, and I guess the two, two components of an ideal working day for me, are, are 
to actually have to make decisions um, in which you know that there's something at stake and therefore weigh up the pros and the cons and take responsibility for what you decide. Um, and then to um, change minds with those decisions and to change how people think or feel about a particular problem. Mm, great. Thank you. And um, David, what's your perfect working day look like? I, I already shared with all of you prior to the podcast that my day must start with five shots of ristretto. So <laughs> once that's done, um, I, besides being heavily caffeinated, I'm a very curious person. So a great, uh, well, perfect working day for me is uh, one in which uh, I've learned something new. And uh, whether that's a, a new person, an idea, a place I've never been before, a piece of art or music or a new food, whatever. Um, and, you know, I especially enjoy um, stretching myself uh, with challenges, with new things that force me to think in a different way about the world and my approach to it. So this topic, questions about morality and ethics in the digital age certainly provide an endless stream of opportunities. Great. And I've got to ask you, are, are you a huge Mary Poppins fan? And how many times have you seen the film? Um, or, or, yeah. Well, I, I will say that the, the original movie left a huge mark on me. I even remember going to see it. Uh, I've, I've got an older brother who's 10 years older than I. And I remember being, oh, you know, tiny kid, going to see it in the theater and I'm sure he was asked to bring uh, all of us younger kids much against his will um, as a as a teenage boy to uh, to go see a kiddie film but that left a huge impression on me so uh, you know I think that uh, it's one of those formative experiences that uh, that kind of rattles around our subconscious and uh, peeks itself out when we uh, maybe least expect it yeah, great well thank you all of you for such a fascinating conversation and i've really enjoyed it i found it very stimulating very encouraging so thank you so much david florin and josh for joining on the podcast today and it's it's been a pleasure well thank Thank you you very much digital workplace impact is produced by the digital workplace group a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking research and practitioner expertise for more information visit digitalworkplacegroup.com and if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash dwg underscore podcast this is paul miller wishing you well until next time